Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about how studying the eye microbiome can improve human health with help from Dr. Tony St. Ledger. You'll also learn why old-timey bikes had one giant wheel and how to avoid the dangers of dating app addiction. Let's avoid the dangers of some curiosity. (laughs) (laughs) There are dangers. That's true. Killing cats, man. For sure. Let's satisfy some curiosity. Researchers can do some pretty amazing things by learning more about the eye microbiome. And we've got an expert to help you learn about those things. Dr. Tony St. Ledger is an assistant professor of ophthalmology and immunology at University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. And he recently published a piece in The Conversation to help you learn about the eye microbiome. You already know that studying it can help us find treatments for pink eye and other conditions. And now here's what Tony told us when we asked why he thinks studying the eye microbiome is so important. We have a a general idea of how it works in a mouse, and we're trying to understand how this uh, response works in a human. And if you think about the human's microbiome, if it's dysregulated, we can then start to identify factors or microbes that push your immune system in a more healthy way. So can we target those microbes add them to patients that don't have it or take the, take the bad microbes from patients that do have it, sort of restructure the microbiome landscape into a more healthy one. And then you might be able to relieve some symptoms of autoimmunity from Sjogren's syndrome or, or dry eye disease, which you know affects millions of people per year. And there's really not effective therapies. And what we're doing in my lab right now is we're finding very interesting characteristics with the bugs that do colonize the eye. Specifically, it looks like one of their energy sources are tears from humans. So if we incubate the bacteria that colonize the eye with tears, we see that it grows better. I think that's that's a really interesting finding, at least from my point, that, that these bacteria have developed a relationship with the eye where they, they're being essentially fed by the eye to keep them around longer. And we're also you know, the movement towards trying to genetically modify these eye-colonizing bacteria to eventually end, end up to be long-term delivery vehicles. We've been able to give them a knock-in genes that express fluorescent proteins into these bacteria. So now we can colonize the mice with these bugs and track them over time. So we could track how they grow over time from infancy through adulthood of, of mice, of course, not humans. But but it's sort of the first steps in trying to develop a probiotic therapy. And I spell it P-R-O-B-E-Y-E-O-T-I-C. That's my <laughs> official dad joke. Nice. Um, uh, uh, that my lab sort of um, gets upset with me anytime I say it. But um, I think that's the, the end goal here is to try to develop this new novel therapy to possibly uh, treat some, some really hard-to-treat ocular surface diseases. That's right. Some bacteria grow better by feeding off human tears. Pretty interesting stuff. And research into the eye microbiome has only just begun. Again, that was Dr. Tony St. Ledger, Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology and Immunology at University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. We'll put a link to learn more about Tony, including the full article he wrote on this for the conversation in today's show notes. What's more important to you when choosing a bicycle, speed or safety? Striking the right balance between the need for speed versus surviving the ride is the eternal engineering dilemma. And it's also the reason behind both the design and the demise of the penny-farthing bicycle. 
That's like the bicycle with the gigantic front wheel and then the really tiny back wheel, right? Yeah, it's almost just like the comic relief whenever you're talking about the 1920s. You're like, oh, <laughs> handlebar mustaches and penny-farthing bicycles. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, most of us probably look at the penny-farthing bicycle with its strange shape and consider it quaint or quirky. After all, who could take a bike nicknamed after a small coin rolling after a large coin seriously? Yeah, it really is named after the largest and the smallest coins minted in England in the 1880s, the penny and the farthing, respectively. But as silly as its name and appearance were, it was very serious about one thing, speed. Unlike modern bikes, the high wheeler, as it was nicknamed, didn't have any gears or chains. So the only way to make it go faster was to make the front wheel bigger, which meant you'd travel farther on a single rotation of the pedals. Unfortunately, the design also sent riders flying over the handlebars at the slightest provocation. And while attempts were made to improve on the design, ultimately an entirely new type of bicycle emerged, named the Safety. Basically, the same bike that we've got today. The penny farthing was popular in the 1880s and 90s, but it wasn't the first attempt at a bicycle by engineers. In 1418, an Italian engineer named Giovanni Fontana built a four-wheel machine that used gears connected via rope, but it never caught on. 400 years later, another version of the bike emerged. While it looked similar to modern bikes, Carl Dreyas's Dryzine had no pedals. The concept took off and other designs soon followed. But it was the penny farthing that really caught on and led to our modern bicycles, which goes to show that speed almost always leads in designs. But luckily for us, safety soon follows. Have you ever found yourself swiping on Tinder until it felt like your thumbs were going to fall off? Or checking your OkCupid messages during inappropriate times, like meetings at work or first dates with other people? Well, it turns out that dating app addiction is a real thing. And according to a new study, it's especially likely for people with certain personality traits. I'm going to admit something. I definitely have been addicted to dating apps in the past. Yeah, I think I have too. It's like there was a point where it was keeping me from like going to bed on time. Like I would just be swiping and not caring. It wasn't bringing me any joy, but I would just swipe, 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 swipe. Oh, it's a, it's a virus. <laughs> <laughs> so this research comes from a July 2019 study in the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships. Researchers from The Ohio State University found that people with a particular combination of loneliness and social anxiety were more prone to becoming addicted to dating apps. They looked at past studies that analyzed problematic internet use, which linked social anxiety with a tendency to prefer interacting with people online rather than face-to-face. Scientists actually came up with a term for this called POSI, which stands for Preference for Online Social Interaction. That generally comes with the belief that you're safer and more confident chatting online than face-to-face. Research has also linked loneliness to impaired self-regulation. Basically, you use less self-control when you're lonely. And one effect of that could be compulsive app use. With all this data in mind, the team surveyed a group of 269 undergraduate students, the prime generation of dating app users. The students were asked to rate how much they agreed or disagreed with statements about how much they preferred online interactions and how compulsively they used the apps. They were also asked to report any consequences they experienced as a result of using dating apps, like getting busted for browsing and swiping on profiles while in class or at work. 
and socially anxious people showed a preference for meeting partners digitally instead of face-to-face. No surprise there, but that preference alone didn't cause them to use dating apps compulsively. It's when you added loneliness that people became impulsive users. If you think you have a problem with dating apps, then the first step is the same one you'd take with any other type of addiction. Become aware and acknowledge the problem. If you have trouble setting or abiding by your own rules, there are apps that can set a limit on how long or how often you use dating apps each day. And if you're feeling lonely and socially anxious, you can also try some low-tech loneliness fixes, like spending time with a pet, reading a novel, or doing something creative. You can always buy a plant, too. I'm pretty sure I've been on first dates where I've caught the girl swiping. Oh, I've absolutely checked my <laughs> messages while on a first date as soon as they go to the bathroom. <sighs> I mean, only if it's a bad first date, right? <laughs> Probably some good ones, too. I don't remember. Sure. Before we recap what we learned today, here's a sneak peek at what you can catch this weekend on Curiosity.com. This weekend, you'll learn about weird things that happen to your brain when you binge watch a show, a new analysis that says the moon is 100 million years older than we thought, how getting more of a certain vitamin could reduce your risk for skin cancer, and more. Okay, so now let's recap what we learned today. Today we learned that some bacteria use human tears as a fuel source. And that even just knowing that fact is helping researchers come up with new ways to keep our eyes healthy. Well, that shows that me and bacteria have something in common because I use the tears of my enemies as a fuel source. Wow. And that old-timey bikes looked silly but were super fast and super dangerous. And that dating app addiction is a thing. So be careful if you've been feeling lonely lately. Swiping too much might get you into trouble. I'm just so glad I'm not single anymore. Yeah, same. Join us again Sunday to learn something new in just a few minutes. And have a great weekend. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Stay curious. Stay curious.